In neurology, there's an excess of conditions which we would call idiopathic. Idiopathic meaning we're idiots, and we don't know why the condition developed. Bell's palsy, for instance, is often idiopathic. Headaches, very idiopathic. 20% of all strokes are idiopathic, but we call them cryptogenic. Idiopathic is everywhere in neurology, and it's not necessarily because we aren't clever enough to reach the diagnosis, or because we lack the sophistication in imaging or diagnostic testing to identify the cause of the neurologic problem. Neurology, like all fields in medicine, is advancing at an explosive rate. We're discovering more and more genetic markers for diseases, more and more antibodies, and other biomarkers. Sometimes it's just hard to keep up with all of it. This week on the show, we'll be talking about idiopathic transverse myelitis, and why it may or may not always be so idiopathic. I'm Jim Sigler from Philadelphia, and you're listening to Brainwaves. Don't go anywhere. The distribution of a transverse myelitis, when you look at imaging studies, is a different appearance than when you see a lesion of MS. This is Dr. Clyde Markowitz, a neuroimmunologist who's been on the show before. Typically, because the lesions of MS are usually well circumscribed, usually round, somewhat ovoid, and it can be in the spinal cord. Whereas a transverse myelitis usually can be partial or can be complete, will look somewhat different. Clyde's the director of the MS Center at the University of Pennsylvania. So when he says that lesions of transverse myelitis, or the lesions of idiopathic transverse myelitis, are different from that of MS, I believe him. I won't say absolutely the case, but a lot of times it does, and it's usually a a larger distribution. Clyde was on our show back in 2016 to talk about the radiologically isolated syndrome, kind of a variant of MS. And he returns this week to discuss idiopathic transverse myelitis. Clyde, let me ask you something. How long have you been practicing? I've been in practice now for over 20 years at this institution. And have you seen a lot of change in diagnostic testing during your career as a neuroimmunologist? Absolutely. I mean, think about what we had imaging-wise when I first started. You know, MRI was just starting out, and we really didn't have great quality for spinal cord imaging, but that has clearly evolved over the last several decades. Our ability to look at infectious etiologies with more sensitive uh, PCR tests, etc., and even looking at uh, imaging studies that are not necessarily MRIs, such as angiograms or possibly even PET scans. So there's been a lot of evolution over the last couple of decades in terms of our, our ability to diagnose patients with conditions where we previously did not have that information. So today, Clyde, I specifically asked you to join me to talk about this concept of transverse myelitis and specifically idiopathic transverse myelitis. But before we even get into idiopathic transverse myelitis, can you just summarize kind of what transverse myelitis is? How does it present clinically? What do you see radiographically and serologically when you evaluate these patients? So transverse myelitis is, by its definition, inflammation in the transverse plane of the spinal cord. It may be in a segment or in an extensive distribution throughout the spinal cord. And in and of itself, we call that a clinical diagnosis of transverse myelitis, but it can be caused by many different conditions. Conditions like multiple sclerosis. A inflammatory process. Neuromyelitis opticus spectrum disorder. Neurosarcoidosis, lupus, Sjogren syndrome, systemic sclerosis. Vascular process. A spinal cord infarct or a dural AV fistula. 
is there a compression? Which wouldn't mean transverse myelitis, but it could mimic it. And that should be ruled out definitively with neuroimaging. Or even uh, paraneoplastic. Like anti-CRMP5 myelitis, which is associated with a small cell lung cancer. Or anti-ampifysin myelitis that we see in breast cancer. There's also nutritional deficiencies and infections. And even some tumors which could mimic a transverse myelitis. So, I mean, the, the list is awfully large as to what the causes of transverse myelitis are. But when we think about it presenting clinically, patients will present with spinal cord syndromes. And that might look like numbness, weakness in the arms or legs, etc. It could be a tight feeling across their chest or abdomen. They may have difficulty walking, difficulty with urination, constipation. And we also look at whether or not somebody presents acutely with a onset of maximal deficit within the first, you know, minute or two, or over a couple of hours, or more subacute, something that may occur over several days. Maybe somebody presented... As Clyde goes on to mention here, acute transverse myelitis, where symptoms are maximal around the time of onset, that's going to be more suggestive of a spinal cord infarct. Conversely, symptoms that progress slowly over minutes or hours suggest an inflammatory or a parainfectious process. And in a patient who complains of symptoms over weeks or longer, maybe even stepwise progression of symptoms, you should be thinking something structural, nutritional, or neoplastic. Whatever the suspected cause, we often begin the workup with neuroimaging. In the non-compressive arena, we look at you know a variety of imaging studies such as MRI, which will localize and even give us a sense about the distribution of the uh, involved segments. Is this just, you know, a small segment of the spinal cord or is this very large, extensive segments of the spinal cord, which can then break it down into different etiologies. Age also plays a big role in building your differential diagnosis. You know, somebody who's presenting at, you know, 75 is going to be different than somebody who presents at 25. Younger patients might be more likely to have MS whereas patients with neuromyelitis opticus spectrum disorder tend to be a little bit older, but not by much. And then the rest of it's kind of a wash. How high up in the differential diagnosis is an idiopathic transverse myelitis for you? I would say that idiopathic transverse myelitis is left at no more than about 10% of the you know, world that we think about, because most of the time we're going to figure out what it is. In 2002, the Transverse Myelitis Consortium Working Group proposed a set of diagnostic criteria for idiopathic TM. We've posted their criteria on this week's blog for your reference. Basically, they state that the patient must have no serologic evidence of an autoimmune condition or an infection. There can be no evidence, radiologically, of an alternative condition, something like a compressive lesion or a dural AV fistula. Nor could there be lesions in the brain that are consistent with MS. And the patient must have either an enhancing cord lesion or an inflammatory CSF profile. Among patients who meet these final criteria, roughly 1 in 8 will go on to develop MS. So the idiopathic aspect is really at this point a diagnosis that is after we've ruled out everything that we know about today, we call it idiopathic. You know, and I think over the years we have kind of chipped away at that idiopathic arena because we now have better ways to diagnose these problems where previously you would have said, you know, I don't know what this is, so we call it idiopathic. So I like the way that you approach this concept of idiopathic transverse myelitis because it says that we have to exclude absolutely everything that we can think of that may have caused this inflammation of the spinal cord, but 
It's 2018, and the diagnostic criteria, to my understanding, of idiopathic transverse myelitis were published in 2002 and have not really been revised since then. I think people have understood that since 2002, we've discovered the aquaporin-4 antibody and several other antibodies for innermost spectrum disorder. But do you feel like this set of diagnostic criteria should be updated? And if so, what would you add to it? You know, you have the ability now to capture most of the cases. I'm going to tell you that I think it is a moving target. We are, in 2018, farther along than we were, you know, two decades ago with this question. I would have to agree that I do think an update is required. And really, I don't think there's going to ultimately be a very large segment of idiopathic in the future. There was a paper I came across in neurology that was published in January 2018. It's the one that gave me the idea for this talk. The paper was published out of the Mayo Clinic, and it was titled, Evaluation of Idiopathic Transverse Myelitis, Revealing Specific Myelopathy Diagnoses. You can find a reference to it in the show notes. In the paper, 226 patients who were referred to Mayo with a diagnosis of idiopathic transverse myelitis were retrospectively studied. 91% of these patients had been seen and or treated by a neurologist and given an idiopathic diagnosis. The authors reported that of the 226 patients, only 41 of them left Mayo with that diagnosis, 18%. I don't know, maybe Mayo is just awesome. Or maybe the Mayo Clinic is highlighting some of the limitations of community neurologists, or the deficiencies our medical culture is facing with continuing medical education, or it's just proving the rapid pace with which we're developing diagnostic techniques. Giving 82% of patients without a clear diagnosis a new clear diagnosis is not a trivial feat. Knowing that you actually have MS, which was seen in 75 cases from that study, or spinal cord infarct in 37 patients, that has the potential to change clinical management. The other diagnoses that they reached included neurosarcoidosis in 12 patients, neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder in another 12, and then a smaller number with nutritional deficiencies, infectious or para-infectious myelitides. 27 of the patients, 12%, they didn't even have a myelopathy, and yet they were given this diagnosis of an idiopathic transverse myelitis. I found all this very interesting, and I asked Clyde about it. Yeah, I think it's very important to understand that there are different strategies of treatment that will be required to alter what you do and how you manage these patients going forward. I mean, for instance, you know, looking at something like copper deficiency, right? This is something that, you know, a couple decades ago, people were not really aware of this issue. And so here's something that comes about, you able to make a diagnosis. But if you trained, you know, 20 years ago or longer, you may not be on top of this issue. So you may not know that. We have to get that message out to the practicing neurologists, particularly people who are not in an academic center who are hearing about these updates on a regular basis. Clyde's absolutely right here. And when it comes to keeping up with the latest in the literature, as I'm beginning to learn, Journals like Continuum do a great job in providing up-to-date summaries on various clinical topics. In 2015, for example, Benjamin Greenberg and Elliot Froman wrote one review in Continuum, which stated that the clinician has four obligations when seeing a patient who's suspected of having transverse myelitis. First, you should recognize that it is a transverse myelitis, and it's not something else, like a herniated disc or it's a cerebral infarct or it's a tumor. Okay, that step's pretty obvious. Second, you should treat with acute therapies in order to reduce the inflammation. Solumedrol at a fairly large dose, gram a day for, you know, some period of time while we're working this up. Getting the MRI, 
getting the CSF and serum studies. And watch them and see how they do clinically. And if they fail that, you're going to go to either alternative immunosuppressive agents, intravenous immunoglobulin, some people go right to plasma exchange. Two therapies, which are thought to be similarly effective, but everybody's got their own preference. I personally think plasma exchange may have a greater benefit than intravenous immunoglobulin in this setting. The third obligation, while you're starting acute treatments for the patient, is to test them in order to determine the cause. If you find that this patient has a nutritional deficiency or they've got a cancer somewhere else and it's a perineoplastic. Based on the history and the imaging, which etiologies are going to be most likely? You know, so you're going to have to consider all these things. Lastly, the fourth and the final obligation from the Greenberg paper is for the clinician to manage the patient through his or her recovery phase. And then how are you going to manage it going forward to prevent further episodes in the future? You know, if this is going to be a multiple sclerosis process, you're going to need to have them on some disease-modifying therapy. If it's uh, going to be a neuromyelitis optica or something in that arena on the spectrum there, you may consider alternative treatments, you know, one of the other disease-modifying therapies that are more B-cell-depleting therapies, rituximab. You're also going to likely need physical and occupational therapy and a plan for repeat imaging to monitor for new lesions or maybe even additional diagnostic testing if the case remains idiopathic. And make alterations in your plan as you get more information back. Going back to the imaging that you acquire, you know, you mentioned that, you know, longitudinally extensive lesions raise your suspicion for alternative diagnoses. Can you tell me more about what lesion locations and sizes and other features may raise your suspicion for other conditions rather than just a typical you know, inflammatory idiopathic lesion or a multiple sclerosis lesion. So when you do the MRI scan, the first thing you're going to look at is, is there swelling of the spinal cord? Is there a distribution of where this lesion is? Is it primarily posterior columns? Is it the entire uh, spinal cord at that segment? And then does it span multiple levels? You know, if you have a small posterior distribution, maybe one, one spinal segment, maybe somewhat round, you might think, okay, this looks more concerning for multiple sclerosis. And if you see a couple of these scattered throughout the spinal cord, that would make you feel more comfortable for that. But if you see something that looks more extensive where you see swelling of the cord over multiple levels, now you're in a different conversation because MS doesn't typically do that. Normalized optica does, so you'd be definitely concerned about that. That and conditions like neurosarcoidosis and lupus myelitis. Other things include these nutritional issues meaning things like B12 or copper deficiency, which have a posterior and lateral column predominance, not unlike the tabes dorsalis of neurosyphilis, which can affect the ascending posterior column fibers. Longitudinally extensive lesions are also seen in spinal cord infarcts, or AV fistulas. In the case of an AV fistula, you'll often see flow voids adjacent to the cord on a T2 sequence, or more specifically, some serpiginous vessels on MRA of the spine, but because these findings are only about 90-95% to 95% sensitive, the absence of them won't rule out a dural AV fistula, and an angiogram is going to be needed to exclude that diagnosis. If you see something that is the entire spinal cord, and we've seen this in some cases where it starts out at the cervical spine and runs all the way down to the conus, now you're in a whole different arena, right? I mean, so that could be possibly infectious, could be perineoplastic, it could be nutritional. 
You know, so you have to kind of look at the overall distribution of where you see these lesions, how large they are, how much swelling there is, and is there any gadolinium enhancement? How does enhancement help? Because gadolinium enhancement can actually help determine whether or not this is going to end up being a glioma or possibly uh, an inflammatory process. You know, so all these things you factor in as to determining is this something that's going to be uh, responsive to steroids or not. Even with, you know, uh, patients who present with subacute onset over a couple of weeks who can have a glioma that has really been very mild symptomatically and it reaches a point where they come to the physician, you can look at that and you'll be able to say, okay, so this is not really enhancing like you would expect an inflammatory process. There might be a little bit of enhancement along the edges as a kind of a reactive process, but the process of the whole tumor itself is just you know, cells and not necessarily inflammatory changes. So these are the things that we look for on imaging to help us determine the etiology. My next question may seem kind of dumb, but I struggle with this nomenclature. So how does idiopathic transverse myelitis differ from clinically isolated syndrome? And among patients who have idiopathic transverse myelitis, it seems like some people end up going on to develop multiple sclerosis or some other condition that just eventually surfaces when the testing comes back positive. Can you kind of discuss like what these differences are and or is the nomenclature meant to be kind of fuzzy? So the nomenclature of clinically isolated syndrome came about because patients would present with their first neurologic event. And we said that you needed to have multiple events to call somebody MS. And you did some imaging studies and you were concerned that this is MS, but you cannot give them a diagnosis of MS because it requires multiple events. So when they present with their first event, you can only call it a single event or singular sclerosis, but we ended up calling it clinically isolated syndrome. We don't know if it's going to happen again in the future. And I'm going to tell you that as our ability to look at imaging studies of the brain and spinal cord with higher resolution, we can see whether or not patients have lesions that um, are subclinical. This may be too oversimplified, but just to be clear about the nomenclature, when Clyde says subclinical, he's referring to the lesions that had no clinical manifestations, and they may or may not be enhancing on the T1 post-contrasted study, but all the same, no symptoms. Okay, here's Clyde again. And that has helped a lot with the diagnosis of MS, where we now use a lot of MRIs to even, you know, make a diagnosis initially. So the notion of a clinically isolated syndrome is kind of going away as we move forward, because we're going to say, you know, we can make an earlier diagnosis of MS, even in people who present with one event, if they've got evidence of GAN-enhancing lesions in their brain, and it could be one time point. You don't need another time point anymore. So that clinical event could be MS, and you're going to be able to use the imaging studies to make that diagnosis. Because you're seeing a new acute lesion, which is enhancing with gadolinium, and then also a non-enhancing lesion, which would suggest an inflammation from a prior time point in history. But if somebody presents with a single lesion in their spinal cord, and it looks typical of MS, and you do a spinal tap and you see evidence of oligoclonal bands, that in and of itself, you cannot make a diagnosis of MS. And so now you've really shrunk down that world of clinical isolated syndrome to a single lesion, single event. High risk to go on to develop MS, so you watch these people. But you can't say whether or not... This it's important here to acknowledge that the risk of recurrence in a patient who has clinically isolated syndrome 
whether it's due to transverse myelitis or it's an inflammatory lesion that's elsewhere in the central nervous system. Recurrence is definitely more likely in patients who have pre-existing autoimmune conditions, and obviously if you have known multiple sclerosis or innermost spectrum disorder. Other independent risk factors for recurrence include female gender, black race, a longitudinally extensive lesion on MRI, and an inflammatory CSF profile, like having oligoclonal bands. In idiopathic cases of transverse myelitis, recurrence, it turns out, is not that uncommon, occurring in perhaps a quarter of patients. And when you see it, for all the reasons that we just mentioned, it should raise your suspicion for a misdiagnosis. I think, you know, the ability to, to make a clinically isolated syndrome diagnosis for a patient has improved, but I'm going to tell you that it tends now to be less important. And we're calling more of those people now MS. What Clyde is saying here really resonates with what the Mayo Clinic cohort demonstrated. A third of those patients with idiopathic transverse myelitis were found to have MS upon referral. But this is usually determined with follow-up imaging, or with more sensitive testing, like using a 3 or a 7 Tesla magnet over a 1.5 T scanner. So this part got me thinking. Back to those four obligations from the Continuum article, to recognize that it's transverse myelitis, to treat it acutely, to test the patient appropriately, and fourthly, to manage the patient during their recovery. That fourth obligation is not all that specific when you have an idiopathic transverse myelitis case. Knowing that you cannot predict the risk of recurrence in these cases, it could be as few as one in eight or as many as one in three, do you treat them empirically with disease-modifying therapy? Or do you watch and wait, maybe getting serial imaging? I didn't know these answers, so I asked Clyde what he would do. Well, that's a difficult question because we don't have any studies that really answer that question. You could make a case and say, let's treat these patients, but you could also say, are we over-treating them and are we putting them at risk for some of the complications or side effects with the medications we use to treat MS? You could say, let's go ahead and put you on a fairly safe drug, one of the injectable therapies. But the problem with MS is that it's so variable, and you just don't know whether a patient's going to have another event, and if so, when. Similarly, the outcome of patients with idiopathic transverse myelitis can be unpredictable. Right? A 25-year-old may have another event in, you know, next year or in 20 years, and you don't know that. So you're kind of committing them to a, a, a life of a diagnosis and a treatment that they may not need at this point. So you'd love to be able to have some dissemination over time. So I'm going to tell you that most of the MS field at this point feels fairly comfortable saying, well, this kind of case that does not meet the criteria for MS should probably just be monitored with serial imaging studies looking for any evidence of dissemination in space and in time. Well, I believe I asked you enough questions for one day, Clyde. Thanks for joining me on Brainwaves again. My pleasure, as always. Again, that was Dr. Clyde Markowitz, a neuroimmunologist and the MS Center director based here at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. For some images of interesting cases and their diagnoses, which may or may not be idiopathic transverse myelitis, and some other useful data, I'll refer you to the blog entry for this week. As always, we appreciate any feedback about the show, so let us know what you think by rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show today, let your colleagues know. We really appreciate you getting the word out. Music for our program this week was courtesy of Quantum Jazz. 
Rui and Steve Combs. The producer would be me, Jim Siegler. And with that, we'll fade up the music and I'll chat with you again soon.